Hello, friends. Welcome back to Lingering on the Lectionary, where we reflect on the life of the churches, the local academy, and the rhythm of the church's liturgy. Thanks for being here. Today, I talk with my friend, Dr. Matt Bennett, about his new book that reflects on American evangelicalism from a missionary perspective. Matt has years of field experience and is a well-respected missiologist. I'm grateful to hear his insights and to receive his challenges in this discussion. Thanks for listening. Well, welcome, Matt. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're going to chat about some of your work in missiology and cultural analysis in one of the several thousand books you've recently published. Uh, But before we jump in, could you introduce yourself a bit and tell us about what you do here at Cedarville? Absolutely. Well, first off, thanks, Chad, for letting me join you here on the podcast. I'm really excited. Uh, One of those longtime listeners, first time. (laughs) I'm caller sort of situation. So I, I'm grateful for the chance to be here with you. But uh, Jed and I get to serve here in the School of Biblical and Theological Studies at Cedarville University. And I specifically get the chance to teach both theology and missions classes here. All right. And uh, before you came here, you served cross-cultural context for a while, which I realized, realized the big gap in your pop culture references. It's true. There's a great vacuum in in between 2011 and 2017 in terms of my ability to keep up with sports or uh, other trivia related to culture here. Yeah, I kind of got uh, clued into that when you know I met you and you kept saying "What's up," you know. So <laughs> that's good. That's right. That's right. Uh, well, in a few weeks, uh, you have a book coming out called "Hope for American Evangelicals: A Missionary Perspective on Restoring Our Broken House" with B and H. Um, so I thought we could start there. What are uh, what would you say are some of the core claims you make in this book? Uh, what are you hoping to accomplish with this work? Yeah, well, first, I guess, like what I'm hoping to accomplish is to to highlight the fact that evangelicalism has a core that is valuable and precious and worth reclaiming, um, even despite some of the contemporary antagonism or critique that gets levied at it. And I, I think that, um, you know, if you look at kind of the the Bebbington basic framework for what means or what evangelical means. I think all four of those pillars are are precious and they're they're worth saying, let's not make evangelical a dirty word because the things that originally kind of gave some framework to what it should mean are valuable for structuring our lives around. At the same time, let's not stick our heads in the stand and realize that there are some valid critiques in the ways that we've embodied some of these things. And particularly as we find ourselves maybe more increasingly pushed into different tribes or ends of uh, the extreme ends of a a spectrum um, between cultural capitulation or being cultural warriors, I want to propose that if we intentionally look at evangelicalism and particularly some of the most hot button issues by first donning the lenses of a missionary that might reframe some of the conversation and might allow us both to critique our our own culture even within the church um, but in ways that that aim to redeem and reclaim and and stand on those those solid pillars that Mm -hmm. we have inherited from historical evangelical thought Yeah, I appreciate that uh, about the book in particular. Uh, We'll talk a little bit uh, here in a minute about some of those, um, those, the balance you're trying to strike between sometimes competing uh, forces in this discussion. Uh, But the the structure of the book, um, you want to talk a little bit about how you, uh, the the major metaphor you you used, uh, because the subtitle here was Restoring Our Broken House, uh, but you used the metaphor of your own house uh, from your childhood and uh, being away from it and then coming back. Um, so uh, w- what do you, what about that metaphor uh, that you extend throughout the book uh, do you think is helpful for uh, examining current evangelicalism in America? Yeah, just the more that I was thinking about it, um, you know, on one hand, this is a this is a trade level book, so it's it's not academic intentionally so so it's my first go at trying to 
entice readers to actually keep reading um, who don't have to for a class or something like that. Um, and so the the framework, sort of the ongoing analogy that I'm trying to draw is uh, drawing on my own return after about six years of uh, living outside of my my childhood home, um, coming back, realizing that it's going to need to be prepared for sale. Um, and the way that I look at that home six years later and out of a desire to make it attractive to somebody who would be a potential buyer, reshaped the things that I saw, the things that I took notice of. Um, and so as I walked through these rooms that were intimately familiar and important to my childhood formation, I realized there were things that were probably never up to snuff. Um, you know, some of the, I use the analogy of the, the cabinets in our kitchen always stuck. And I, I, to this day, have muscle memory that when I think about opening those cabinets, I know exactly how much force I need to yeah. apply because they, they were sticky. But we just accommodated our habits to pulling harder as a family rather than actually saying, oh, these probably need to be taken off the uh, off their hinges. They need to be sanded down and, and and re-lacquered and then re-hung more precisely in order to work the way they're supposed to. But it's just easier to change our habits to just say, well, mm -hmm. this this is just how things are. When you come back and you look at those same cabinets from the eyes of somebody who might be uh, might be farther removed from it, they don't have the childhood nostalgia connected to a place that makes it endeared to them that they overlook its infelicities, but rather they're looking at it saying, does this actually function? Is this mm -hmm. worth investing in? And so looking through it through those lenses, you begin to realize, oh man, there's there's a number of aspects of this place that have become so familiar to me that I haven't actually seen that they probably need some attention. And so mm -hmm. using that lens as we walk through different rooms kind of serves as an analogy for some of the different topics that I think uh, we may look at uh, through familiar and perhaps even nostalgic eyes um, and have at times missed the, the things that need to be addressed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I like the uh, metaphor, too, just to kind of uh, think through uh, as an illustration for some things. As you mentioned, some of the things that were perhaps um, features of your home, your childhood home, that probably should have been fixed at that point, um, but that for whatever reason, of course, just was delayed and then you accommodated your habits to it, um, recognizing those things. But then also, I really like the way that... Um, some of the explanatory power of the metaphor as you moved into different topics um, where your family made a decision about what to do with the space that was probably bad for resale value, but was actually a formative um, thing that part of your life was built around. So the the big one that I, I, I really liked was the, you know, the basketball court in the backyard which is not good for resale value when somebody's coming at, but like that was very formative for back when you were a street youth uh, growing up in the backyard. That was something a sign, an act of love, not an act of um, irresponsibility or negligence. Yeah, it was kind of a, I used the distinction between somebody who would want to manicure a space to make it look nice, but useless versus something that would be assessed for what could this space do to serve our family? And then how do we steward it in such a way that it can serve those purposes? And mm -hmm. that does look different than a manicured lawn. Uh, it's a big, ugly cement slab, but man, it was yeah. a formative space where I interacted with my dad and my sisters and I played and we had picnics and things. And so it was a, a place of family investment that may not have been beautiful to the you know passers-by on the sidewalk mm -hmm. but it was something that was formative and I try to layer that on to some of the ways that sometimes our impulse in evangelicalism today can be to make sure that our our branding our systems and our efficiencies are you know top-notch and really out there to be attractive but mm -hmm. at times can do that can invest in those sorts of things at the expense of investing in the life on life work of discipleship of people. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's where our, uh, that's where our investment needs to be. Right. Yeah. I think that has a, a lot of explanatory power. Another feature that runs throughout the book, um, 
this is part of my, also my appreciation for the structure of the book as you kind of start with the illustration about returning to a childhood home where things are extremely familiar, but also very foreign, not because the home had necessarily changed, but because you had changed, your perspective has changed. Uh, but then uh, the second part, you kind of bring that into dialogue with the uh, insights of uh, Leslie Newbigin, um, who, uh, so as you're thinking about uh, why uh, this particular figure, uh, who is uh, Newbigin, and uh, why why do you think he's particularly relevant for uh, the discussion you're you're working with here? Yeah, well, Newbigin's one of those guys who's like an eminently quotable guy. In fact, there's uh, there's a whole Twitter account that's dedicated merely to putting out tweets of his that particularly focus on what is the church and then how is it intimately connected to a a missional core and so uh, somebody has summarized uh, newbegin's teaching about the church and kind of his whole program as a missional ecclesiology and he sees the church as inextricably connected to being a outward facing community that as we live out the story of scripture together as a community. We also scatter in order to be on mission and telling this story and living its impact in the the spaces uh, that mm -hmm. the, the Lord has placed us. But the thing that makes it uh, sort of a, a natural fit with this particular analogy is that most of Newbegin's writings, especially his most well-known stuff, actually came after he moved off of the mission field. He spent about 40 years in India serving in a variety of capacities and then moved back to England in the later parts of his life and spent sort of a, a second career working as a pastor, as a professor, and as an author. And um, it was in that time that some of his reflections and the skills and reflexes that he had learned as a cross-cultural missionary, he started taking those very same skills and impulses and started applying them back home and realizing, oh man, it's it's in many ways the same task. Like mm. in India, maybe it's easy to see a physical temple or a little alcove in somebody's home that's inhabited by a, an idol, but we're still idol hunting in England. It's just the idols may not be as uh, overtly observable, but it's still uh, misdirected worship. And so mm -hmm. the lens of a missionary that begins to filter for where is false worship occurring and permeating a society that's distant from the one that I know is just as appropriate back home. And so mm -hmm. as he came home and applied his missionary lenses to a more familiar context, I saw some parallel even to my family's experience of coming off the mission field and now re-inhabiting some of these evangelical spaces um, pretty formative seven years removed from when we last were in them um, and and reinspecting some of these things having been practicing and, and being formed by some of these missionary habits on the field now bringing mm -hmm. them back before we move uh, away from uh, Newbegin, what what do you think, as this is just more of kind of a general question, what do you think the role of uh, uh, biography in uh, missiological discussions, either as like motivation for mission or um, drawing on their insights? Because sometimes, uh, especially in American culture that's removed from these contexts, sometimes the the biography of a, of a missionary um, could be inspiring but also looking at it for, as, a, as a practitioner or a missiologist, you're thinking one of the reasons why this is a, um, a story of persecution or something like that could have been true um, persecution for the gospel, but also perhaps some just mis mistakes in mission method or some insensitivities or something like that. So how do you like work through that as you're thinking about examples from the mission field or biography of, of that. It, does that make sense of, of what, I mean, is that part of a, the discussion that you have in the study of missiology? Yeah, definitely. Um, and let me take Newbegin as an example here. I mean, obviously I'm, I'm introducing in some ways somebody who has a narrative connected to some of his teachings. And so there is a in a sense, a biographical element uh, that I'm drawing little bits and bobs uh, into this story. I think the thing that I like about Newbegin is that his um, 
personal reflections and activities were things that he consistently brought back into dialogue with scripture hmm. and then reflected on given these circumstances, what would a thick reading of scripture say into this situation, um, mm-hmm. into the mm-hmm. tension in some of the communities that he worked with between proclamation of the gospel and meeting felt human needs and the divisiveness that can occur between different groups of people committed primarily to one or the other of these things. Mm-hmm. His reflection was, okay, this is part of my story. These are the people that I'm engaging with, but let's take them back to scripture and let's subject all of our experiences to that story and say, wait a minute, those two things aren't at odds with one another. Mm -hmm. Proclamation must be embodied, but embodied kindness is not self-interpreting. So it requires proclamation and conversion is at the heart of all these things. So let's not pit them against one another, but rather as he experienced those things, he brought them back into dialogue with scripture. And so I, I appreciate that about him. And I help, I think it helps us to avoid what can be the other tendency to lionize somebody Mm -hmm. who's gone out and done the brave point of the spear sort of work. We can either go to them as sort of this exemplar, assuming that they can do no wrong in anything that we might see in their Mm -hmm. biography that might indicate that in fact they did have feet of clay is to be ignored and we just want to prioritize the sort of quasi worship of this personality. Or we look to them as uh, models for a strategy or a method of missions, and we try to pattern out of, distill out of what they did, some sort of a pattern for our Mm -hmm. own missionary behavior. And I think, again, that just takes us another step away from scripture. So I want to rightly appreciate the legacy and example of those who've gone before, while also saying those stories are not where I want to draw my mission from. I want to draw mm-hmm. my mission from the the warp and woof of the biblical text and the instructions mm-hmm. and teachings given therein. I, I sense that even as the way that you were handling kind of Nubigen and some of his insights, uh, but also noting places where you may have said something different or um, you just uh, differ because of context or era, uh, things through that. Uh, one of the other things I appreciated was the discussion. You, you already mentioned the discussion about the temptation to platform versus work that will not um, is not related to public facing platform, but is people focused. Um, so thinking about some of the ordinary means of grace and m- methods that you might employ in a in a missionary context won't be the ones that are new or exciting. Um, uh, there's no new method here, but it's just the slow work. Uh, so, like if you you know if your if your platform to get into a closed country is something like teaching English as a second language, that's not um, a new thing that will get someone like peaked and interested. It's like, oh, well, that sounds like something people have been doing for years. But in that particular situation, as you described, that was what was best, and that was the way that you were able to maintain the priorities that your team had decided on. So I thought that was that was interesting to me because it related to a few of the different things that you had uh, mentioned in the book, both in terms of emphases, but also cautions. Yeah, that's good. Uh, one of the core concepts you develop is the notion of contextualization. Um, so this is a common term uh, that is um, consistently utilized in a variety of context. Um, so how do you how do you define this term and what do you think is at stake in the process of contextualization? That's a I mean, that's a huge topic in some ways. And so I'm admittedly pretty reductionistic in just giving an, a simple orientation to the discussion. And I think the 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 easiest way to think about it is we are taking the unchanging word of God and seeking to communicate it in ways that are meaningful in the dynamic context of the world. So Mm -hmm. realizing that some of that dynamism is going to come from different languages and different spaces. So as you learn another language, obviously you're not just taking cognate words that exist and carry exactly the same semantic range, one language to the next. So you are making some theologically freighted choices about what words are going to best communicate this biblical message in a, a foreign context. And you begin to realize pretty quickly that 
many of the languages that you're even just beginning to use to communicate this bare gospel message are going to come preloaded with some gospel denying realities from a non-biblical worldview and so some of the task of contextualization just begins at that choice of language and the need to re-biblically define words that you're choosing to use in this host language uh, to to discuss the the things of the gospel but then it also probably what people are more familiar with is kind of the the external expression of the faith in a given place so what does it look like to be and do all the things that are biblically required of a church when you can't have a public building with a big sign out front declaring this is where the church meets because of high persecution or mm -hmm. the depths of poverty um, some of these factors that are going to cause you to say what is the what is the core summons of scripture to gather as a committed body of believers um, to sit under the word taught and to take the ordinances and observe them rightly and to bear one another's burdens encourage one another in the faith and scatter for mission like how do we do that in ways that aren't necessarily assuming a whole bunch of baggage from mm -hmm. our cultural expression in the west a building a powerpoint a projectors microphones and uh, you know a bunch of uh, paid staff like those are acceptable and, and right and good where they can work but they don't necessarily work as forms mm -hmm. to express these things in another place mm -hmm. so how do we do that is part of the missionary task in in every place one of the things i really liked about your book in which i think it's going to help um, the typical churchgoer in America is that starting point, that working definition of contextualization. I really appreciated it because it was straight and to the point, but then throughout the rest of the book, you kind of illustrated what you mean by that uh, brand of contextualization. Um, uh, so in, in that sense, that working definition did a lot of work throughout each of those uh, different places because it was flexible enough to be able to address quite a, a range of different things. As you think about contextualization, this the concept, the same was true for me, just even thinking in biblical and theological studies, thinking, okay, I, I think I know what contextualization means, or I have like this uh, intuitive or gut reaction based on you know my upbringing or my study or just my sense of things. Uh, what do you think? Are there any immediate, either wrong-headed understandings of contextualization, or we could just say some um, ditches that's easy to fall into when you think of contextualization? That your approach that you've taken is trying to keep us away from, or keep us navigating between that. Are there any um, any immediate, uh, big picture mistakes in contextualization that come to mind? Uh, that you think are worth uh, noting? So I'd say um, uh, there's a couple different ditches. Uh, on one hand, especially for uh, missionaries who are crossing cultures and um, are typically uh, open to cultural exploration, there, there can be a tendency to be enamored by mm -hmm. cultural forms in a certain place and afford them a complete uh, uncritical eye as you look to some of the the forms and customs and uh, practices in a new place mm -hmm. and to assume that those are either fully positive forms or maybe at least neutral forms that can just have whatever data you want to dump into them mm -hmm. dumped in and then the expression is going to be perfectly clear just in a new container and so forms of dance or music or ritual are things that are oftentimes exhibitions in a new culture that do carry on certain cultural rehearsals of narratives and storylines and things that uh, that aren't just activities that these strange foreign people do mm -hmm. but actually are perpetuating a way of viewing the world that is i mean the, the whole reason that a missionary goes there is because there's a contrasting view of the world right. the, the scriptures are not determining the way that this 
community is functioning. And so if we take some of these forms uncritically and just say, well, as Christians, we can just kind of draw them into an expression of Christian faith in this place without attending to, well, what story is it actually reinforcing? We could end up uh, walking down the road of syncretism pretty quickly. Mm. Now, I think closer to home, the, the danger is that we say the word contextualization, and what we mean is we have the thing in its essence, right? and we're going to do some action to that thing to make it appropriate somewhere else. So that the thing as we have it is pure and undefiled by a cultural expression, and it needs to be made appropriate from where it is now to where it will go. Mm-hmm. And I think the the push in this book is to say, wait a minute, we are not perfectly living out the story of scripture in the West, and we are appropriating some cultural realities in how we are expressing it. And sometimes because they're familiar, we just have assumed that's a one for one reality. And what we are doing is the natural and pure expression of a certain thing that's not shaped, formed or layered in some cultural realities. And I I think these missionary lenses can help us to reinvestigate some of those assumptions we're making and begin to say, man, we we actually are culturally expressing some of the biblical commands in this place. And rather than assuming it to be pure, let's do the additional text of task of saying, is this a right and appropriate expression in a way that is both reinforcing what we understand the biblical teaching to express, but also communicating to the broader culture what it is that we understand ourselves to be doing. Mm-hmm. That's great. I, I really appreciate that you kind of answering those possible pitfalls. That second one you said closer to home, as you're thinking about the target audience for this particular work, um, I thought that that was that came through very uh, clearly and cogently in a way that was uncomfortable. You know, as I'm reading through it, I'm like, mm, okay, he might be talking about me, <laughs> you know, or someone like very much like me. Because the, that one of the things I was mentioning before, that, that gut instinct, uh, when you're thinking about contextualization, you're thinking about, okay, cross-cultural ministry and that contextualization happens on the other side of that, as you mentioned. Uh, but I thought your book does a really helpful job of helping a American reader see that um, a lot of our cultural practices have, uh, we have contextualized uh, the gospel in certain ways. And as you mentioned, some of those ways are appropriate uh, because this is our context, right? This is our culture. But being able to interrogate those things just like we would in a cross-cultural setting, I thought was was very helpful. As you mentioned a few times at the beginning of the book, contextualization is just as important at home and also the idea of doing contextualization in familiar settings, which of course is the idea of your uh, running metaphor throughout the book. I thought it was a helpful starting point to help those uh, cultural critiques that we're comfortable making to others to help see that <laughs> there's a glint in the mirror because it's that critique is coming back uh, towards us. This made, this made me think of, it's not a foreign country, but I grew up in Texas and I knew in Texas there was a, uh, there was a fault line between uh, Texas A&M and the University of Texas, like an Aggie versus a Longhorn. Or so I n- knew what that sports, um, and you say, oh, that's a trivial example. If you live in Texas, very real. <laughs> um, but as I, when we moved up, up north uh, to be, you know, to be uh, smug northerners, one of the things that um, I, th- the first year we were here, I joked with several people because it took me a ye- about a year to, for it to click what was actually happening. I knew when we moved in uh, that I was supposed to, I was, there was social pressure on me to have negative, irrational hatred for the state of Michigan. And uh, it was just, it was simple things like uh, someone would, I would say something about, oh, that's from Michigan. Someone would say, oh, Michigan, you know, this, this idea. And it was a while before it clicked. I was like, oh, y'all are talking about college football, you know, like OSU versus uh, Michigan, the game. That's, that's what everybody's talking about. Um, and I recognize this uh, as a, you, you mentioned in the book, some of those implicit assumptions that we uh, take on without realizing it. I just, 10 years later, 
uh, my wife was, uh, we needed a, um, a seat for the bleachers and, uh, she saw on uh, marketplace or whatever that somebody was selling this seat and she's like, Oh, this is like $5. It's like a $40 seat. And it's like, Oh, this is cheap $5. There's nothing wrong with it. You know, but I, I looked at it and it had this big M on it and I was like, Oh, sweetheart, you cannot get that. You cannot bring that to our our games. You will be accosted, or at the very least, you're going to have some uh, intense conversations. And sure enough, she said she uh, emailed the person and said, "Well, uh, my my husband said that this would probably cause uh, lots of problems." She said, "Yeah, that's why it's five dollars because no one no one up here is going to buy it." Um, so as we're thinking uh, of that, I. I thought about that example when I was reading your book because I thought, well, that was something that I noticed immediately when I came from Texas, but 10 years later, like that's common sense to me. And I have to remind myself of the, that, that social reality. And when I go to Texas and visit, um, and it made me think, oh, that's a trivial example in some ways. Um, yeah, I say in some ways, because if you live in Ohio, it's not, it's a, it's a, it's a real thing. Um, but it it did make me think as, as I was reading through chapter by chapter that it's like, well, what other elements of my, you know, my area of the country or my of American culture has seeped into my thinking to where I might have I might have uh, initially recognized it. But now all of a sudden it's not something I think about. It's it's something I think with it's something that has just shaped the way that I think. And so I think that um, that idea, that reminder the uh, interrogation of contextualization is something that we need to go through presently in our context. That was a really, really helpful reminder, and I thought thought you uh, communicated that really well. That's good. One, one maybe closer to home example of that, that 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 does kind of go beyond the superficial and into some of our ecclesial practices. I, I think is a. a an exercise we do well to consider and reflect on how do we do communion or the Lord's Supper? Mm. You know, a lot of times people think of, you know, frequency first, but uh, I mean, there's a sense in which we're, we're called to break this bread of unity, to drink from this cup of the, the one body and blood of the Lord, right? And particularly you and I being Baptists, we've been very intentional about the the form that we associate with baptism, the other ordinance given to us, mm -hmm. but the forms that we've allowed to be acceptable within our partaking of the Lord's Supper actually probably need to be reconsidered in some ways if they're going mm -hmm. to be symbolic of what they're intended to symbolize. But in our culture, there's so many concerns even prior to covid there were so many concerns yeah. about things like uh, passing germs uh, that we quickly moved to the little individual wafers and you know come covid we've got wafers and cups that can mm -hmm. be distributed to individuals and taken in their seats as individuals and we all do it at the same time but that form is actually communicating something that is native more to our context than something that would be the natural way of expressing the right. biblical teaching. And I, I don't want to be too dogmatic about that, but it is a form that has been contextualized to our setting that I think we just think, well, yeah, that's why we have those trays with the little holes in them so that we can individually mm -hmm. pass these things around. And there's a number of assumptions that go underneath that too. Yeah. Even if it's, um, even if you're able to um, maintain the corporate nature of the of the practice, the uh, the individualizing of the elements resonates completely. Where I'm not thinking anything odd about this at all. Whereas if you were passing a loaf of bread around, I would be thinking about how odd this was. Uh, you know, so just those starting points. Uh, yeah, I think that's a, a really good example that hits str straight into our uh, ecclesial practices. Another one that hits right into uh, an ecclesial practice uh, that's at the center of uh, our context and the and the churches that we minister to, which are so uh, gospel centered uh, and word focused, is the way that we define gospel words uh, in our context, but also in a cross cultural context. And I really appreciated the way that you articulate 
how um, how you articulate gospel words in contexts where there are loaded expressions that seem to be the only ones available. Um, so the question of, well, do we use this word for sacrifice or atonement that is completely loaded with either pagan ideas or just non-biblical notions? And so what way do we do, we do that? And your answer was, through the defining power of the biblical story to shape the reader's understanding of terms. So not just telling that story, but allowing the the grand storyline of the scriptures to be the context, the shared context in which those biblical words make sense. And I really appreciated that. And I thought, I was wondering if you could kind of speak to that, because it seems like if this is true, then theological education and the idea of like the discipline of biblical theology is actually not just a um, supplement to the missionary task of training missionaries and, and being ready for that cross-cultural experience, but it's something that is is necessary. Uh, how is that? Would you agree with that or how would you articulate that idea? Absolutely. And this, this is something that Newbegin, uh, I think, sets a, a really good tone for in saying that all of our understanding of the world has to correspond to the story of the world that is the one ultimate story that God has told, has mediated to us through the written word of God, and which is our task to sort of put on. And as we put it on, it's going to challenge the assumptions and, and the baseline that we come to the text with, but it's always going to be working its own story into our lives and calling us up into it. What that means for words and defining words is that the languages that we speak come with some background and some baggage that's usually invisible in terms of a dictionary definition uh, in the way that it's used or some of the, the baggage, the intention that comes along with the, the use of a particular word, such that our first blush reading of scripture oftentimes we assume certain things about what those words mean because of the way that we have come to use them. So mm -hmm. the biblical definition of love is one key term, yeah. but maybe even at a more theological level, um, that idea of atonement is one of those words where you're like, well, this word is hard to define because I don't really have a extra biblical category for it. And so in biblical studies, sometimes you get people who will be appealing to a bunch of ancient Near Eastern languages or cognate languages to say, OK, there's kind of a, a similar term here that seems to mean these sorts of things. So let's just hodgepodge a bunch of different data together and say, well, it must kind of mean that. But the reality of a, an extensive biblical storyline in which these words occur and are defined in context is a real advantage to us if we're trying to say, I don't want to be satisfied with a superficial understanding that I'm actually bringing to the text in the maybe biased reading of its language. I actually mm -hmm. want to be challenged in what the Bible means when it says atonement. So read the book of Leviticus, see the multiple ways that the language of atonement is provided as the the resolution to a host of different problems from impurity mm -hmm. to guilt and then consider how the new testament extends and continues some of that language in and through the work of christ and what's the ritual element that's connected to that and then how does that manifest itself in christ it it takes a long time of being uh, acquainted with the biblical use of language to hear not my voice or my assumptions in the Bible's use of language, but the biblical author's mm -hmm. use of that language. And so, yeah, I think theological education and just a steady diet of being in the word and reading it in big portions over and over again, studying its particulars and not assuming my first uh, my first definition is in fact mm -hmm. the sum total of what the biblical language means is big. Yeah, that's so uh, transformative as a, an approach as you're thinking this would have to, if, I, if I'm doing the missionary task, this has to be something that I am well equipped with, but it actually, actually then for it to be a shared worldview story, then I have to constantly be teaching it and um, working that into the way that I'm proclaiming the gospel in whatever context that is, whether that's 
an American or uh, a different country. And, and the second layer of that is that in the same way as we need to be exercising a, a hermeneutical relationship with the text of scripture, we also need to be doing the same thing with the people and culture around us because while we can perhaps ascertain what a biblical meaning of a word is and then prepare to teach it, we also have to realize that more than just the assumptions we bring in to how a word works, our, our friends and neighbors in the broader culture have their mm -hmm. own sense of assumptions. So love is, is a prime example of that. I mean, you can't hardly talk about the Christian gospel without using the language of love, but in the broader society, love adorns a whole host of things that would be outside of the the biblical way of of living and, and constructing our orientation to the world. Mm -hmm. It's come to adopt a whole host of things that need to be, we need to be aware of what it means when I say love so that I can help train and teach. Okay, when I say love, I'm saying it from this perspective, and I know that that is going to include some other elements for you, and I, I want to be clear that I'm uh, I'm speaking using it in this term, in this this fashion. Yeah, I think that's an excellent e example. Of love in American culture is going to inform that. That's something that n now in our culture, in particular, we have to constantly be diligent about what we mean and what someone else hears when we say love. Uh, and I think that also love and also law, uh, law and authority uh, in certain contexts, uh, especially as you discuss in the racial divide uh, discussion, some communities are going to hear law and uh, authority in very different terms. Uh, the American judicial system and the way that military and police function in America is going to not only inform the way that we might understand and articulate that in a different culture, but also in our own culture, different people are going to hear that in very different ways, either as as uh, something positive and constructive in a civil society or something that is a great existential threat. And if we if if we're not able to attend to that or articulate those uh, things, then we're going to have a hard time actually not just ministering, but communicating. Um, and that's something that you, you kind of took the contextualization uh, point and made it into um, a resource or something that's urgent as we're thinking about gospel communication uh, in, in any in any place. Yeah, and that that's at the core. I mean, contextualization should be primarily concerned with communication more so than cultural novelty. Um, and sometimes it, it falls into the ditch of appropriating things that seem culturally novel more so than it does clearly um, seeking to communicate a, an unchanging message. Right. Well, as we kind of zoom out from this, some of these details uh, in your work as a whole and kind of just your whole approach to ministry and missiology, you seem to be trying to strike the balance between uh, harsh critique on the one side or defensive support for uh, core evangelical commitments in our in evangelical churches. Um, you also talk about the tw you know twin dangers that face Christians of you know social activism or mere proclamation as both of those realities, mere proclamation or defensive support for evangelicalism versus harsh critique, and pure social activism, those things are animated in most of the uh, uh, subjects that you address here. Uh, do you have any thoughts on why you think it's so difficult to maintain that balance either inside the commu Christian community or outside the Christian community? Uh, what about those elements uh, make it so difficult to, to maintain that balance between those competing forces? Uh, I mean, I think the, uh, the simple answer is uh, sin. <laughs> the attractiveness of either being angry and right and just uh, establishing ourselves staunchly in what we currently understand to be true and then wielding that as weaponry um, to uh, accost anybody uh, on the outside of the, the barriers that we've constructed um, or 
those who would say, well, how are we going to reach the world if we keep holding to some of these really divisive statements that seem like uh, the cultural winds are blowing in the opposite direction. Maybe we should put down some of this messaging in order to get our hands dirty in the streets and and care for people and show them so that they can uh, understand that they belong before they ever come to believe. And Mm -hmm. you have these two tendencies and both of them are tapping on something that's right and good. We do want to be salt and light in the world and to be in the world while not being of it. Um, And we can't effectively share the gospel unless we have and maintain meaningful relationships with people who are far from Jesus. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, on the other hand, we want to cling to uh, our confidence, our convictions, and our, our biblical groundedness that does put us at odds with the rest of society. And I think Christ is a wonderful model, and, and the apostles are wonderful models of this for us, um, in that they don't see a divide between standing for convictional truth and being compelled towards others. But And I think that even before just kind of taking the example route, because that can go awry uh, if people choose Jesus or Paul as their model, sometimes mm-hmm. they can house that with whatever preference they already have. But I, I just think that our anthropology as embodied souls also demands that doing theology, proclaiming a gospel for embodied souls is going to both necessitate some truth claims that are unchanging and will conflict with sinful worldviews, um, but also that it's going to have an impact on the embodiment of those souls. And mm-hmm. if you can do your theology and it could be a completed task by a brain in a vat, it probably hasn't finished its task if we are actually embodied souls. So I expect that as I ruminate on the gospel, as I cling to its truths, it must make its way out into the way that I live. And some of the way that I live is going to be recognizing hurt and brokenness around me. First seeing people who are bearing God's image, who are denying him the worship he's due, and that being the greatest injustice in the universe. But then secondly, also recognizing, man, you are an eternal soul who has made the image of God, who is for the task of giving him pleasing worship and finding your deepest satisfaction in that. And so I know that as you fail to do that, you're not satisfied. And I want the same sort of satisfaction for you as I have found in the gospel. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's good. Well, I think, too, the um, the difficulty that you described sinful patterns and then also the the difficulty of of the fact that that kind the kind of contextualization that you are putting forward is not an easy or a comfortable task so it's in some ways it's it's work and it's a constant work but it's of course the work that the gospel itself prepares us for and uh sustains us in but it's a lot it's not easy in the sense of we're not very we haven't been trained usually or we're not as um we don't have as much capacity to hold those tensions in tension or to to maintain that dynamic it's much easier to pull up one of those stakes and go left or right because there's a a a tribe there's a the comfort of social enclaves that are just waiting for us (laughs) to make money in to feel comfortable in to feel right in um, in a world that is oftentimes disordered um, and so I, I like the way that you you provide examples and tools and a vision for what it looks like for the church to to come together on or maintain the balance between some of these poles uh, in some of the most divisive issues of our culture. Uh, but most of those divisive issues strike at the core of what we believe it means to be human and what it means to be a gospel people. So you're doing it by... Uh, instruction, but also by modeling this uh, in your work. To conclude here, I usually I like to ask a kind of more general reflective question. You've kind of been articulating some of this along the way, but there's a lot going on in our world that's discouraging. But uh, what is something you've experienced or reflected upon recently that gives you hope? Yeah. So I'm teaching a church planting class this semester and teaching a church planting class as a missional suggestion 
uh, a uh, something to prioritize to see the the gospel advance in a culture like this where we've got some you know, well-known podcasts that are unveiling the corruption in the church and mm -hmm. and there's some real rot being exposed it, it seems like it it raises that question of like is this the best way forward like should we still cling to this church thing or is there another way to be jesus people uh today in this era and man my encouragement to them has just been born of my own reflections of saying there's nothing else that jesus said would uh, withstand and advance beyond the gates of hell except for his church and so my hope is not in necessarily our ability to right the ship or figure out the the algorithm for how to how to fight the flesh and contextualize perfectly but my hope is in the the one who indwells his church and the one who's promised us victory in him um and so i just want to keep going back to saying all evidence to the contrary jesus says his church is the way forward mm and even where i see brokenness and fallibility in myself and my own expressions i want to trust his word over my perception and so the church is worth it the church is plan a until mm -hmm. christ returns to make things new that's a that's a helpful helpful and hopeful word uh to think through the, the church is god's plan for the world you say this a few times you draw from nubigen but also you articulate it in a variety of ways about the church is it the church for a place yeah the, the church is a church in a place and for a place. Right. And so it needs to be attentive to its task to be called up into a bigger story of Scripture and to have all of our individual lesser stories challenged and chastened by Scripture and conformed to it. But as we scatter into the communities where we spend the bulk of our weeks, it's incumbent upon us to recognize that we don't cease to be the church, but we are the church on mission in and for that place. And so I, I just want that Ephesians 4 vision of the church to permeate the, the leadership and their vision of equipping the saints for the work of the ministry than in the places where the Lord has them. And yeah, th thank you for that, that word too, because that kind of relates to the message of your book as well. There's hope for the American evangelical church, uh, restoring our broken house that there's, there's rot in places, uh, and there's, um, there's broken down houses here. Uh, but if we have hope for this place, then it will be through the church in this place. And so I think that's a, both a helpful word in terms of giving us some angles to think carefully about what that critique looks like, but also what that constructive, um, reconstruction looks like uh, as well so well thanks matt for your time today um i know that uh i i refuse to walk across the hallways to uh, do this in person but that's part of my social anxiety and i've got a lot to learn about cross cubicle communication as well um so i've learned so much from your work and your friendship and you know blessed to be your colleague much appreciated Ditto, friend. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. <laughs>